Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. First of all, congratulations to our seniors. We're sorry that you didn't get to celebrate this occasion in the traditional way, but we're thrilled that you made it through and we want to celebrate all that you've achieved. So we'll be hearing more from each of you next week. Today, we're in part four of our conversation series where we're exploring our vision for Trinity Heights. It takes different kinds of churches to reach different kinds of people. And so we're spending a few weeks considering how we're going about reaching people in our neck of the woods, as it were. But of course, we're not in the woods, are we? We're in the global city, surrounded by the major institutions of art and education and media. And we're conscious that in an increasingly secularized culture, most people, whether they're connected to these institutions or not, have decided that the church and her story are entirely irrelevant. This is sometimes because the church has communicated poorly or communicated the wrong things, or if not the wrong things, we put the emphasis in the wrong place. At Trinity Heights, we're exploring the Christian story together to see if this ancient narrative can be compelling for life today. And so we hope these sessions will capture the spirit of the conversation that we want to have with our friends and family and neighbors in the city. So grab more coffee, sit back, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Stephen, fancy uh, seeing you here. <laughs> yes, quite. I have to say, I do miss bumping into people. You know, it's just funny how in a city this size, it happened quite a bit actually. Um, but uh, now all our interactions are scheduled, I guess. Right. Funny in a city of 8 million people, you could still somehow have chance encounters. Uh, I remember bumping into you and Julia that one time. You were with two friends on the Central Park Mall. We were surrounded by dogs and, believe it or not, people. <laughs> people good good times yeah you know it's funny now if i see a person from a distance i feel like i've come across the, a unicorn <laughs> the other day i was out for a run and a puppy broke loose from its owner and ran towards me and i had to grab it and it started licking me and cuddling and it was the strangest experience after so little contact with the outside world. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? You know, how, how you know, all these little things, you just take it for granted <laughs> until, you know, you don't, you don't have it anymore. Then you, then you really, you really miss it. Yeah, for sure. Well, welcome to all you unicorns and potential puppy owners out there. Thanks for listening in today as Stephen and I continue to solve the world's problems one Zoom session at a time. And today's problem is... Drum roll, please. <laughs> Seriously, what are we what are we speaking about today? Uh, well, uh, last week we talked about storytelling in the gospel as compelling narrative, and I was hoping we could continue along those lines this morning. Right. Yeah, that that was a great conversation, and we we spent mm -hmm. some time exploring why the Bible is filled with so many stories, which, which happen to sort of repeat over and over again. Uh, so sometimes these stories are aimed at establishing the right. world for us in, in terms of telling us, you know, what, what's beautiful, what's ugly, what's good, what's evil, what to hope for, what to fear, etc. Uh, but, but some stories are like the Exodus mm -hmm. or, or Jesus' parables. Um, that they're, they're sort of meant to, to call into question the world as it's been established for us. They're, they're meant to disrupt the world the way it is. Uh, and depending on, on where you're standing, uh, might, these stories might be disturbing, or of course they might be offering mm -hmm. a, new, a new hope. But, but the point is all of these stories have the power to, to shape us one way or another. It's interesting how that happens, isn't it? 
Oh, it really is. Uh, one, one example I, I often use is, you know, George Lucas, who he, he saw a generation of kids growing up mm -hmm. without a grounding myth. Uh, mm -hmm. There were just a bunch of sort of kitchen sink dramas, drab little stories, you know, far, far too taken up with their own sort of relativistic sophistication. So Lucas comes along and he makes the Star Wars movies to provide that grounding myth. And the amazing thing is that's exactly what those movies became. Uh, you know, when, when I talk to friends who grew up in the 1980s, it doesn't really matter if they're, they're friends who grew up in America or my wife who grew up in Brazil or, or me in the, in the UK, or, all of us were actually doing the same thing. Every day in the playground, we were reenacting the Star Wars movies. And as, as the story was played out over and over again, we, we didn't know we were doing this, but what we were doing is we were reinscribing um, so much of, of what is really the, the Christian narrative. It, it, it often us archetypes of good and evil. It said redemption was possible. It held out uh, the hope of forgiveness, uh, self-sacrifice, community. Mm. And so it didn't really matter how relativistic things were in the UK during the 1980s. It, it was just, it was the best storytellers who captured our imaginations. And I think ended up shaping us in a rather uh, profoundly. Sure, yeah, I, I like where this is going. We're off to a good start here, Stephen. Uh, if I had a halfway decent Yoda impression, this seems like the time that I might use it. So here we go. <laughs> wow. It's almost as good, almost as, good as mine. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> I've noticed uh, on the Trinity Heights website, we talk a lot about the story, but uh, we don't do much along the way of any kind of firm doctrinal statement. I'm assuming this is intentional. Well, it's, it's partly because we, we think it's better, there are better ways to start a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. so, so look, if I say to you, Eric, these are my firm, uncompromising beliefs, bullet pointed for your convenience. <laughs> how are you supposed to respond to that? What, 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 what is the correct response to that? Well, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, we would be friends had things started off like that. <laughs> But it is interesting because I think that the first thing Christians have been trained to look for on a church website is some kind of firm doctrinal statement mm. uh, as a way of seeing if they might be uh, allowed to attend or part of the target audience. Come to think of it, actually, any company or organization seems to advertise their values fairly prominently with the understanding that they'll be attracting some and excluding others. That's, that's true, and, and that's, that's helpful if, you, if you're only looking for people who are already members of your tribe, people who already mm -hmm. agree with you. But, but suppose I'm, I'm talking to someone who doesn't agree with me. Uh, then saying, look, here are my beliefs, here are my values, that doesn't really invite people into a conversation. It's, it's, it's not so helpful for starting and sustaining ongoing meaningful dialogue with people who may mm -hmm. in, some, in some ways view the world very differently. The way I do. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, if you, if you stop and think about the sort of the breakdown in our broader, very sort of polarized cultural conversation, all, all our sort of in, incommensurable arguments, right, exist in large part because the arguments are taking place at the superficial level of abstracted beliefs and values. Uh, sure. but, but all this tends to do is drive, drive us apart. And, and I think mm -hmm. if, if Trinity Heights is going to reposition itself to be able to, to sort of not only start but actually sustain an ongoing dialogue with the surrounding culture. Um, which is this, this whole series is about that, then, then my guess is we'll have to go uh, beneath the surface of our values, wh whether they mm -hmm. be you know, political, social, religious values. We need to go beneath the surface of those values to the stories which give rise to these values in the first place. 
Uh, and, mm -hmm. and I think this ties back nicely to what we were talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think, you know, in terms of, uh, I think understanding stories is, is part of what it means to enter into another, into another culture. Absolutely. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that storytelling has the potential to create a mutual understanding. Stories open up a shared space or a place where we can meet, show love and respect to one another, even if we find ourselves agreeing to disagree. Yeah, because look, you, you may have some very deeply held values which make perfect mm -hmm. sense to you. But they make perfect sense to you because you're committed to a particular story about the world. But, mm -hmm. but because I'm committed to this other story over here, those values don't make any sense to me within this narrative framework. So, so, so at the very least, what I need to do is to try to understand the story you're, you're already committed to so that I have some understanding of why you hold on to certain values. So mm -hmm. what, what this does, instead of demonizing each other for holding these different values, we can tell each other stories and invite each other to view the world from, from within those, those stories. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Um, actually, to, to be honest, we, we actually have far more um, shared values than, than we realize. Uh, sure. you, you, can, look, you, can, you can look at a sort of secularized, progressive, liberal uh, sort of woke culture and you can put that right alongside conservative traditional religious culture. And, and at first glance, you look at that, you think, well, they have absolutely nothing in common. But that's, that's a very superficial understanding of the situation. The reality is that the same story that produces the traditional conservatives is the exact same story that produces and makes possible uh, progressive liberals. Uh, Western people, look, here's what's going on. Western people may disagree on how justice and compassion and egalitarianism and, and, and human rights should be directed and distributed, right? Should, should they be directed mm -hmm. at, at women first or the mm -hmm. unborn first, right? To take one particularly contentious example, right? Um, mm -hmm. Women first or, or the unborn first. But right. still arguing for, this, for the same values of justice and compassion and egalitarianism and human rights. It's just talking about mm -hmm. where they're directed. And, and that's because if, if you're mm -hmm. living in the Western world, you and I have been shaped by the narrative that we find in the Bible far more profoundly than, than we might realize. You know, this reminds me uh, of DNA. You know how we're always hearing that you have more in common genetically with a squid than an orangutan or some kind of monkey. <laughs> yeah. And I can't remember the exact facts, but you, you understand what I'm saying. So that what looks like huge differences on the surface are, are actually the effects of a deeply rooted shared DNA. Right. Yeah. That that's a that that's a great illustration. I mean, that gets mm -hmm. to, the, to the the point of what, what I'm trying to make. Um, mm -hmm. Whether we, whether we realize it or not, um, and, and I think we we actually what this means is we actually have an amazing advantage over someone, say, for example, the Apostle Paul. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, he he was dealing with the pagan, a truly pagan world, uh, where this story had not yet been unleashed, had not mm -hmm. yet been sort of let out, as it were. But now this story has been at work in the world for a couple of millennia, shaping our mm -hmm. lives, shaping our culture, shaping humanity. Uh, and, and so what happens is when, when people, very often when they start to explore the Christian narrative, they, they find themselves already embedded in this story, oftentimes more deeply than they ever realized. Hmm. Um, and actually, this is how I became thoroughly convinced of, of the Christian narrative. You know, I, I was going along. I started to 
piece together, you know, my own way of looking at the world. And as I'm doing, piecing it together, I discover that there's certain tools, certain uh, intellectual tools, um, values that I, that I couldn't do without. And when I trace these tools back to their origins, I discover that they're, they're, they, they originate within this story. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm going along and I'm piecing together my way of looking at the world. And I discover, oh, and here's a couple more interesting tools that I really need. I'm not sure what I'd do without them. And I trace mm -hmm. the origins of these tools, again, back to the story. And so when no one's looking, I'm begging and stealing and borrowing from, from this, this narrative um, and, and from where the, they, these tools originate and find their ultimate justification. Um, so, so I think when we're inviting people to explore the Christian story, what we're, in a sense, what we're inviting people to do is to discover their own origins. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in fact, this is this has been this has been stated very strongly, uh, not, not not by me, uh, as, as as you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, Frederick Nietzsche, and <laughs> it, it, it's actually something that he's argued for. You know, he he says that Jesus Christ was the most noble human being that has ever lived. Mm, and, mm -hmm. and when he says that, he doesn't mean noble as in he had lots of good character traits, right? Mm -hmm. He's honorable, he's, he's upstanding and that sort of thing. It, it, what he means is, is that Jesus is of the aristocracy. He, he's, he's aristocratic. He's, he's of a higher rank. He's of a different class than, than you or, 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 or I. He, he's, of, um, he's of nobility, as it were. Right. And that's so strange to me because why would Nietzsche of all people the atheist of all atheists even say something like that well I think Nietzsche would say and just to borrow some of his language here uh, he would mm -hmm. say that Jesus experienced the, the sort of the whole of the history of humanity as mm -hmm. his own history Jesus horizons sort of encompass thousands of years past and thousands of years in the future uh, all our, our losses and hopes, conquests mm -hmm. and victories um, contained in one soul, crowded into a single feeling. And, and so Jesus looked at humanity, past and future, and said, I am going to shape humanity around myself. Mm. I, I am going to set humanity on this course, on this trajectory. From now on, humanity is going to look like this. Mm. Now, to say that sort of thing, that's, that's not just ambitious. You know, ambition is when you say, I'm going to be the richest man in the world, or I'm going to be the, the most famous person in the world, or I'm going to be the, 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 the most famous artist in the world, or, or whatever. That, that's mm -hmm. ambition. But mm -hmm. I'm going to shape humanity around me. That, that's mm -hmm. not ambition. That's a kind of lunacy, right? Mm -hmm. but, but, but Nietzsche says, well, actually, that's exactly what has happened in the Christ event. So it's almost like Nietzsche is acknowledging the competition. He recognizes the size of the thing which he's turned himself against. Yeah, which, which is something that very few people tend to recognize. And I, look, I certainly mm. didn't when I was going through a more agnostic, atheistic, leaning uh, sort of approach to life. Uh, I certainly mm -hmm. didn't until Nietzsche kindly point, pointed this out for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just had a conversation last week with a friend who, you know, she, she comes from what she would call a, a, a pagan, pagan background. Mm -hmm. uh, her family enjoys some of the, the, the sort of pagan rites and, and rituals. And uh, as she was introduced to the church, she was, uh, at first she was saying, well, who knows if any of this is true? No one can say mm -hmm. for sure. And it doesn't really matter. Um, mm -hmm. but, but she was telling me that, that one Sunday the, the, the question uh, was raised, what is 
what is progress? Now, now this seems mm. like a very simple, easy to answer question until you stop and think about it. Mm. And she really thought about it. And the question just stayed with her. And she's a lawyer, so, so law is very much tied to human progress, obviously, because it's connected with you know, justice and, and egalitarianism and all of that. So, so her legal mind was not able to let go of this question. And she started asking her, her family members, you know, you're, you're all very concerned with justice, compassion, egalitarian ideals, but, but where does this come from? Well, well no answer, right? no, no response. So, and what she's coming to realize is that the Christian narrative is the source and justification of so many of these values of progress and justice and equality, et cetera. And, 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 and in as much as these values constitute her, then, then, then the Christian narrative is a source of her very self. And her, her pagan family are really nothing of the sort. They're, they're sort of, you, you might call them secularized Christians who enjoy some of the frill, frills of, of uh, paganism on, on, on the edges. Mm, that's amazing. Sure. So we really are, as a culture, I guess, more entrenched in a common story than any of us realize. And that's my big takeaway from, from that story. And so it seems that somehow tapping into the narrative flow or using story as a conversation starter might actually work to access this underlying DNA like we talked about. Right. If we uh, frame things within stories, all of a sudden something incredible happens. The conversations that we're trying to have, these conversations continue. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, it, right, so God does give the world narrative. He tells us stories, and by doing so, invites us to embrace story and storytelling. But Stephen, to be fair, he also does give us the Ten Commandments. He, he does, but in the context of a story, right? I mean, the, the, mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments are actually introduced as part of a story. Right, uh, I am. Mm. They don't introduce this way. God says, "I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." Then comes the first commandment: "You shall have no other gods before me." Then comes the second mm -hmm. commandment: "You shall not make for yourself graven images, idols, in the form of anything on the earth, or above the earth, or below the earth." Uh, you know, ironically, one one of the quickest ways to to break the first and second commandment and, and fall back into idolatry, and I, I think it'd be really helpful if we could just sort of circle around these commandments this mm -hmm. morning one of the, the quickest ways to break these commandments is to just forget the story just detach mm -hmm. the commandments and beliefs from from the story of origin mm -hmm. so if i understand what you're saying you're you're saying that the ten commandments aren't just a list of rules but function more like a table of contents mm -hmm. each with a each of the ten referring back to a larger story so to remove the commandments from the broader narrative somehow reduces them to a list of piddly do's and don'ts. So for example, though sh uh, thou shalt not make any uh, graven images or have any idols, there's a, a larger backstory there. You should, absolutely. So, so part, of, part of the backstory, the whole backstory, but part of the backstory is that we will become, human beings, will be we become like what we worship. So we become like what, what we love, mm. what we give our devotion and affection to. So, so the story is that if we give this sort of affection or worship to something in the created order, we'll become like that thing. Uh, and so our humanity will be distorted, our personhood will be diminished, and we'll, we'll find ourselves enslaved. 
you know, God, God says, yeah, I've, I've just rescued you from the dehumanizing slavery in Egypt. <laughs> uh, idolatry will take you right back there. Gotcha. But, you know, I, I found myself really hoping for an actual story there uh, <laughs> until I realized that uh, it's stories that we've heard all our lives over and over again. It's, it's Gollum in Lord of the Rings obsessing over his precious. It's Dorian Gray idolizing his youth. Mm. It's Voldemort uh, obsessed with power. Yeah, so, so it's not just, it isn't just, as you said, don't touch the ring or don't keep that painting in your attic. Don't, don't cast this spell. We're, we're not meant to extract these commands from the stories and then turn them into an abstract moral code. Because when we do that, these commands cease to make any sense, except for some, perhaps something along the lines of, well, because God said so. Well, that, that becomes <laughs> only this sort of more draconian sort of approach to all this. Uh, the, the, these, um, these propositions become, with, without the story, become, become meaningless. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, it, and if you stop and think about it. It's kind of a weird thing to do to stories, right? We, we don't look, we don't take Little Red Riding Hood and turn it into a series of points or, or a system. You know, she she had a mm -hmm. basket. Point two, she had a red hood. Point <laughs> three, the forest was very dense. Point four, mm -hmm. her grandmother's house was. I mean, it, it, it's not meant to be mm -hmm. analysed quite like that. But that but that is the strange thing that we've done with uh, the stories in the book. It's a strange thing to do with a book full of stories. Yeah, it's almost like stories are wild and untamed things and too often we feel the need to domesticate them for our own purposes like trying to take a lion and turn it into a house cat i like that and and look what what so because what happens right when we when we tame the wild stories of scripture with a system when, when we try to distill the faith to some key propositions uh and and it has its place um, but, but then mm -hmm. having sort of proved out these propositions from scripture, organize these propositions into a nice tidy system, there's mm -hmm. always the danger that we become so enamored with the system that we feel like we, we no longer need the Bible. Uh, because mm -hmm. the Bible is sort of a, like a disorganized systematic. And, and now, now that we've distilled the truth from it, organized it, then who really needs the Bible? The, the, the system trumps the biblical narrative. And, and, and this mm -hmm. happens. I remember discussing a particular theological issue with another pastor here in town. And his response was, well, sometimes you just have to let your system trump, trump the narrative. That, that, that's, a, that's a natural quote. Really, man. So I can already see how through our well-meaning attempt to distill everything down to a moral code or a list of rules or an easily ingestible user-friendly system, we immediately begin to suck the life out of something that only really functions when it's allowed to live and breathe in all of its hugeness and all of its complexity. Exactly. But, um, because when, when, these, when these closed self-contained systems become the final authority and everything has to conform to the contours of the system, uh, we, we might find ourselves trying to, to contain God in our favorite system. And, and when mm -hmm. God becomes so closely identified with the system, well, the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. Right. You know, I've heard it said before that idolatry is when we worship any aspect of creation rather than worshiping the creator. Right, right. So, you know, it could be a tree, it could be my sex life, mm -hmm. but, but idolatry could actually have a very religious veneer. So I, could, I can take uh, great comfort or, or turn to my sort of religious system to protect me from the things I fear the most. And, and so this could be my, my theological system. And, and, the, and the trouble with, with idols is that they're, they're really quite fragile things. You know, the Bible talks a lot 
about how they can neither see nor hear nor talk. In fact, they can't do anything for themselves. So it's, it's up to us to protect the idol. And, and so people who don't use the, the sort of identical language as us, who don't work with the same conceptual schemes as us, uh, who don't adhere to the same system, they become suspects, maybe even threats to, to my system, mm. my idol. Um, which must be protected at all costs because, well, God himself is in the system. So, so other people uh, must either be made to conform to the contours of our system or we, must, we, we have no choice but to hold them at arm's length. Stay, you know, keep, stay back. Sure. Right, yeah, you know, I've, I've seen this happen before. I've had a number of friends from a particular religion and philosophy class back in college. It, it was taught by a certain professor who for whatever reason, refused to entertain any discussion whatsoever that might deal with the questioning of scripture or potential alternative interpretations uh, of different passages. And so most of my friends would leave class feeling incredibly hurt and frustrated because they thought that in the, at least in the spirit of lively debate, that they might somehow be able to explore things a bit. But no, you know, there was never any room for discussion and you couldn't help feel that somehow, uh, you know, students were not supposed to push too hard for fear that the whole thing might fall apart or they might expose the proverbial wizard behind the curtain. <laughs> right, yeah, put, put, put on this thread and the whole thing <laughs> is going to come undone like a cheap sweater. Yeah. Uh, and this, yeah. and, and this, this, I think, makes relationships in general very difficult because there's always this threat behind every sentence that if you don't agree with the next sentence out of my mouth, uh, mm. you're, you're, you're kicked out of the, the club or we'll, we'll hold you further away. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to, to bring it back to last week's discussion, it, it also opens up the chasm between the church and, and the broader culture because we're, mm -hmm. we're so busy defending our, our and protecting our theological system. But guess what? The world can care less about the minutia of our mm -hmm. theological systems. Um, mm -hmm. but, but that's the only language we know how to speak. And, and, and we're back to, to shouting across the chasm in a foreign language, as we were talking mm -hmm. about, which is, which is why uh, you'll, you'll often find that despite all the seemingly very self-assured, absolute statements you'll sometimes hear from certain Christians, there's a sort of, uh, if you listen carefully, there's a sort of fragility to their faith, pr precisely because somewhere along the way, uh, the system became confused with God. And, um, and, and that, this, look, this has a lot to do with the way we train people. There's, there's been, uh, it's systemic, <laughs> if you like, mm -hmm. that there's, mm -hmm. there's been a tendency, especially in theological education in America, not, not, not always, but very often, uh, we train people to learn a particular theological system, learn to defend that system, um, and the, the pastors then go and train the churches to do the same thing. And so we all be together become ingrained in a particular language, and it makes us really bad at talking to the, to the world around us, I think. Yeah, this is obviously incredibly problematic. Systematic, systematic theology or the need to order the minutia of our faith into tidy boxes can become idolatrous. And then on the flip side, I guess you have our desire to have deep, meaningful or mystical or cathartic experiences with God. And these, uh, this desire for an experiential uh, approach to God can become uh, idolatrous as well. Right. It's, it's meant to be the sort of antidote to this sort of living in your head sort of a, approach. Mm -hmm. But but you're right. Uh, what what happens is the same tendency that we see, we see with system uh, where we try to reduce God to that system. We, we can also try to reduce God to a particular experience. So that's that faith mm -hmm. in, in, in Jesus Christ be, becomes about curating a particular 
experience in order to generate certain feelings which are themselves indistinguishable from God. And, um, and like the systems, you know, we, we, we start to use these experiences to measure and size each other up. And, and of course, you know, the people outside the church who can't enter into those experiences, well, we'll just write them off as spiritually dead. And so, so once again, you know, we're suspicious of each other uh, and, and we become incomprehensible to the world around us. But this, this is precisely what idolatry does. This is, this is where it takes us. Yeah, and here we are back again. Anything can become an idol. Even our desires to experience God can get in the way of God himself. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why in the Bible, God, God doesn't give us a, a system or prescribe a, a singular experience, but he gives us this more expansive and, and flexible category of story, which, it, which includes experience, which includes systems, but, but ultimately trans, transcends them. Right. So story, in all of its complexity, actively encourage us, uh, encourages us to explore and mine things organically essentially as a preventative measure against reductionism or an antidote to our need to control things. Yes, yeah, so, but so story doesn't deny experience. In, in fact, this, this story, the, the, the meta story in the Bible is full mm -hmm. of experiences, but it challenges us to locate our own experience in the full range of experiences that are described. Uh, so some people in the Bible have radical burning bush encounters, others encounter God in a whisper, uh, others mm. experience a, a long and painful absence and hiddenness of God. That, that's the sort of time in, in, in slavery or in captivity or under occupation. Um, so we're, we're invited to locate our own experience in a, in a story mm. that transcends that, that experience. Um, and, and then on the other hand, the person who, who's into systematics is, is, is also challenged to recognize that while systems have their place, all of our language and categories about God fall short. There isn't language mm. enough to wrap around God and exhaust the full-blooded experience of, of the Creator. Mm -hmm. um, so the so story then includes experiences and it includes systems, but, but it's a much larger and, and wilder category the open contours of which and, and, and sort of open-endedness are, are an invitation not to try to prescribe a, a, an experience or, or create a system and try to contain God there, but I think we're mm. invited to lose ourselves in the story and discover the, the boundless God. Yes, absolutely. Discover the boundless God. That's, that's good stuff. Thanks so much, Stephen. I'm going to stop us right there and let's pick up the conversation next week as we move to trace out the biblical plot line a little more and discuss in more detail the ins and outs of the story that we've been given. That would be great. I'm really looking forward to, to discussing that. Same. And again, thank you all for listening. Conversations like this aren't meant to be one-sided. I know I just keep hitting the same nail over and over again, but we really want you to know that uh, we want to hear what you have to say. Please reach out. And uh, Trinity Heights as a church thrives when we all join in and hash things out together. So I truly mean it when I say I hope that we can talk soon. Talk soon. Yeah.